From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. There's something about cookbooks where if they're from somebody that you trust and somebody you like, there's this pedigree to them where you're like, hey, you know, if I make something out of this, it's probably going to be good. If they say it's good, it's probably going to be good. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Andrew Ray, who you perhaps know better from his pseudonym, Babish. And that's Babish of Binging with Babish, the YouTube channel that Andrew launched in 2016 with a recreation of a turkey burger from the NBC comedy Parks and Recreation. In a story of nearly overnight success, the Binging with Babish content took off, and today he has more than 5.5 million subscribers on that YouTube page. And the classic concept remains, as Andrew in his Babish role recreates famous, and sometimes not so famous, recipes from popular culture. Think of recipes like the titular dish from Pixar's Ratatouille, or the Moistmaker Thanksgiving sandwich from Friends, or that shockingly simple but delectable favorite Pasta Aglioiolio from John Favreau's Chef. That's just a quick sampling. To date, there's more than 150 Binging with Babish videos, plus offshoots like a basics series on kitchen essentials. And now Andrew's jumped from screen to spine with his latest cookbook, Binging with Babish, 100 Recipes Recreated from Your Favorite Movies and TV Shows. In today's show, we'll talk with Andrew about how the seeds of his love for both food and film were planted at an early age, about the path that led him to create his first Binging with Babish video, and then leave his full-time job and become a YouTube food star, some of his favorite movie and TV dishes that he's recreated and some of the worst, and of course, it's not salt and spine without a signature game. This time it's binging with Babish style. Also in today's show, Great Jones's Sierra Tishgart shares a vintage work from their cookbook collection, and we feature recipes from binging with Babish for you to recreate at home. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Andrew Ray joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're glad to have you. And we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, Binging with Babish, um, aptly named cookbook. But we always like to start by talking about you and sort of your life and how you got to where you are today. So you grew up in Rochester, New York. Is that right? Correct. The 585 in the Great White North. Yes. Yes. And the home of many great culinary traditions, including, I think, the second best grocery store in the country. Excuse me? (laughs) I'm sorry. What's the best? Have you then, been to Berkeley sir? Bowl in in the Bay Area here? Right, I'm not going to knock you because I yeah. haven't been there. But in what ways could it possibly be superior it's, to Mother Wegmans? It's very different than a Wegmans in that it's it's very produce heavy and it relies heavily on local produce. Right, that's like California nature here. Um, but I do I do love Wegmans a lot. Well, I, I mean, it does sound good. But for just general purpose grocery store, I, feel, I I just feel like this it's unparalleled. But I will check out what was it called again? It's called Berkeley Bowl. Berkeley yeah, Bowl. Yeah, its All name right. comes from it's in an old bowling alley. Actually, the original location. That also sounds fun. So you grew up in Rochester. New York, home yeah. of Wegmans, home of, of um, the garbage plate, other great culinary icons, and food was sort of interesting to you as a kid, right? Yeah, it was something that me and my mother always, always shared. She taught me how to cook when I was very young, just simple things, Nestle's Toll House cookies, uh-huh. stews, um, linguine with uh, white clam sauce, you know, the, okay. the, the sort of uh, Italian-American mom originals. Sure. Yeah. So you cooked with her pretty often, and she passed away when you were quite young, too. Yes, when I was 11. When you were 11. Yeah. 
But you were cooking with her pretty much up until that point quite regularly? Yeah, as far as I can remember. You know, it's okay. all a little foggy, but it's, sure. it's some of the few memories that I have retained are from that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's some of the few memories that I've retained. Uh, so I, I treasure them and, uh, it's, it's really, um, yeah, inspired this whole kick that I'm on now. Yeah, it really instilled that interest in food when you were young. And, and then you were also pretty interested in film, mostly film, photography too, or just sort of visual content? Definitely photography. But yeah, film was always at the forefront. Film is also a uh, generous term. I, okay. I, 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 when I was young, I would watch not some not so great movies like, uh, say, Short Circuit. I watched so many times that I broke the VHS. Okay. Uh, I'm a rewatcher. I'm <laughs> yeah. a chronic rewatcher. Yeah. Um, and that was my first rewatching epidemic. So, you know, I just always loved movies and, uh, I was always obsessed with getting obsessed with them. I, I would watch them over and over and over again. And I still do that to this day. If I love something, I've seen it 20 times at least. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road, uh, uh-huh. um, uh, Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse. So I, I, I have them memorized at this point. Sure. Frasier. Yes. Yeah. I know you're a big Fraser fan, right? You have a Fraser tattoo. Big time. Yes. Yeah. So you're interested in film, watching a lot of film as a, as a young person, as a kid. When do you start to sort of decide that you might want to do something with film? Also sort of early on, right? Your dad has a camcorder that you start to play with. Yeah. It was back in middle school. The first time that I got out of writing an essay by making a video. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the only way I graduated high school, essentially. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I was supposed to write, write a, uh, a paper about, um, these submarines that were in uh, Civil War, believe it or not. Okay. Is that correct? Yes. These, I know like, nothing the, the, about the that. earliest iteration of like submarines. Sure. Like, they're, they're like death traps, if I remember correctly. Okay. Was it Civil War? I, th- I feel like it's it, it's crazy like that. Like it yeah. was crazy old, not World War One. I. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll get our fact checkers yeah, yeah, on we'll, it. Yeah, yeah we'll, 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 we'll look into that. Yeah. But um, I was supposed to write a paper on it, and uh, instead I said, you know, can I make a video about this? Because my dad had just gotten the camera, mm-hmm. and they were like, you're going to try to make a video about these early warfare submarines? And I was like, yeah. And I ended up uh, dragging uh, the models of the top halves of the submarines across a blue tarp using... Um, using a fishing line in my backyard and fireworks to indicate the sort of uh, fire between the ships. Uh, And um, at the time I thought it was really quite good. I had uh, this really dramatic music, I think from um, what's that civil war movie uh, uh, glory, the the soundtrack from glory blasting on a boom box in the background. So every time I cut the camera, (laughs) it would jump to a different part of the song. Right. It wasn't very good, but it got me out of writing an essay. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And by ninth grade, I was, I I was like, that's my career choice. Okay. And so you knew pretty clearly, because I think you also have written in the book that you sort of had a choice point between food and, and film. Yeah. I, I, I I was definitely torn. Uh, I wasn't sure I, I wanted to, you know, maybe become a chef, maybe become a filmmaker. Okay. Both, you know, really secure, uh, thriving career choices, uh, that always work out. Yeah, uh, so, right. um, I, I, uh, I went with film, I went to film school uh-huh. and just pursued that and just kept cooking alive as a hobby. Sure. So you went to Hofstra, yes. majored in, in film studies, mm-hmm. graduate, get a job, start working sort of your working full-time job. You're doing, I think, visual effects. Is that right? Yes. For a while? Uh, yeah, I was working on uh, commercial visual effects. Uh, so bounty, a lot of bounty paper towel commercials. Okay. Um, a lot of, um, uh, Smirnoff vodka. We did a lot of that. Sure. There was a whole campaign where we had to replace all the labels on the bottles and man, that was a bitch. Yeah. Should I not swear? No, you can <laughs> swear. All right, well, there we go. Man, yeah. that was a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing this for a while and you hit this point where you sort of realize you're not really happy with your career or yeah. at least with the job. Yeah. Uh, or both. Well, no, no. I'm so, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I was, um, 
I was happy with my job. I was working with some great people, but I was feeling creatively, um, just empty. Uh, yeah. cause it's not a, very, it's not a very creative job. You have to be a, a creative problem solver, but I'm not making things. I'm not writing things. I'm not, uh, telling stories. I'm just doing these cool visual effects that end up on commercials that are seen all, all around the country, but sure. it's, it's not scratching my creative itch. That's not why I got into the business. Yeah. Um, so that was bumming me out. Um, I was in a, uh, I was, I was married and not, um, happily. So I tend not to dive too deep into that out of respect for all parties involved. But, sure. uh, the point is that, you know, we were wrong for each other. She was nothing wrong with her is nothing wrong with me, but we just weren't right for each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was weighing heavily on me. And I didn't really, realize it. I didn't really accept or understand that until kind of a catastrophic moment, uh, that I, that, that I decided to undergo, uh, also kind of not safe for work. I don't know if you want to discuss it on here, but um, it's up to you. Well, I, I, so I ate mushrooms and went to my therapist under right. the influence of psilocybin, right? Which uh, you write about in the book. Yeah. So we're, we're a game to talk okay, about it. Yeah. I just want to make sure I don't <laughs> yeah. know if it's a family program. And, uh, that was decidedly a, uh, interesting experience that, uh, yeah. literally yielded immediate results. I left that therapy session knowing I can't stay in this relationship anymore and I have to try to shake my career up. I knew those two things as absolute truths. And I thought I was scared it was going to fade away with time, but it, that's, that's the idea behind using, uh, diff- these different substances being, uh, it being, uh, mushrooms or, or MDMA or, mm-hmm. or LSD in therapy is that it can create lasting chemical changes in your brain. And that literally happened to me. Like I hate being one of those guys. that's like, man, drugs change my life, man. Right. But like, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. hard to not say that when that week I told my wife how I felt. And a month later we had moved out of our apartment. Like it was that catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. And you really, the way you write about it is that you really almost, you hit a rock bottom both yeah. professionally and personally yeah. at the same time. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't want to go too deep into it in the cookbook. I get Uh very personal in this cookbook, but I didn't want want to go nuts, but I was, you know, I was getting into suicidal territory. I was, I was very, very depressed. Um, and, uh, yeah, I spent two weeks in bed pretending I had food poisoning because I couldn't, I couldn't get up. I couldn't, uh, couldn't face down what my sort of day to day life had become and how far I was from who I imagined myself to be, my, my fullest self. Um, so that was, uh, that was, that was a tough pill to swallow, but sometimes that's the impetus for crazy change. I want to come back to the change in a second, but I want to linger on this for a minute too. Why did you decide to include so much of yourself and that part of your life in the cookbook and that being so open about those personal struggles? I think it's for the same reason that I show my mistakes on the show, mm-hmm. on, on, on the cooking show. Right. Um, I always show when I screw up because I want people to see their mistakes in the kitchen as learning opportunities. It's an opportunity to become a better cook. And for some people, myself included, sometimes it would end in me rage quitting. Like before I started making the show, I would, you know, if I, if I burnt something or screwed something, I would be like, you know, fuck it, we're ordering takeout. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I, I've since learned that, okay, you know, if I screw something up, that's something I'm not going to do wrong next time. And it's going to be a better end result. And I hope people, take that away because I don't want them to be discouraged when things go wrong in the kitchen. Things go wrong in the kitchen all the time Yeah, for all of us. Sure. Except for like Wiley Dufresne, I guess, but (laughs) us normal people (laughs) happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this, so you're, you're in this moment and you have, I 
I think this is the moment you say you have a fateful breakfast with your friends from high school. Where does that sort of fit in the timeline? That, that actually uh, predates that predates this moment. Yeah, okay. this this was that was back in two thousand nine. This whole brain explosion thing happened in like twenty sixteen. Uh, two thousand nine okay. is when I decided like, okay, I want to become a halfway decent cook. Sure. Because my entire life I thought I was a great cook, and I really wasn't. I was really bad actually. I tried to th- uh, throw a um, dinner party in two thousand nine before this day. This this isn't in the book. That okay. I tried to throw a dinner party um and it was a disaster i tried to make a 10 course tasting menu okay yeah and imagine a person who's who thinks they're very good in the kitchen but is not who <laughs> tries to make a 10 course tasting menu sure and you're like doing this all in one afternoon or something uh yeah and i, I did it for all my coworkers for 15 people okay. in my tiny brooklyn apartment it was the stupidest thing i've ever done in my life yeah and I think that that's a problem that a lot of people have when they start cooking. They're trying to cook well above their pay grade. And by that, I mean, just, you know, thinking that they can wield this crazy power in the kitchen that they don't have a fundamental understanding of why food behaves the way it does. And that's what mm-hmm. you need. You need that foundation before you can really start fucking around. Right. Yeah. You need those basics yeah. to steal your word. Yes. Thank you. I don't know if it's your word. <laughs> I do have a trademark. Yes. Okay. No, I'm kidding. So, so you have that sort of revelation that you want to learn how to cook more. And then when do you actually start? When do you start recording and say, I'm going to do the first binging with Babish? So that wasn't until 2016. 2016. And at that point, I think I had improved as a home cook because I stopped trying to be experimental and crazy. I just wanted to make the best beef stew, the best right. grilled cheese, the best, you know, fettuccine Alfredo or whatever. But so yeah, then in 2016, I hit my rock bottom there. Um, and, uh, decided to start going to therapy. That's when mm-hmm. I started going to therapy. And after a few months of that, I realized, okay, I need a creative outlet. So I started making the show and that happened quite by accident. I bought a camera and a light to do some freelance work. And I was like, huh, what about food photography? You like food photography or you like food. Andrew. Sure. Uh, you, you, surely you can combine these two passions. And, uh, uh, so I set the camera up in the kitchen and I was like, what do I make? What do I shoot? What do I do? And parks and rec was on in the background. Mm-hmm. There was a burger cook off happening. I was like, what would that actually taste like? And so I, I spent the next day painstakingly track, uh, tracking down these, fancy ingredients a gluten-free brioche bun was actually quite hard to track down at the time Uh, obviously gluten-free is very popular especially in new york i'd imagine it's popular here in san francisco Mm -hmm. as well uh but uh, gluten-free brioche in particular i couldn't find that in grocery stores i ended up having to go to a bear burger and buy one of their gluten-free brioche buns okay and that was the first episode then so that's the traeger turkey burger yes the chris traeger turkey burger yes and then my mushroom experience happened after the third episode (laughs) okay got it so you'd done three episodes when you when that happened but you also have said you only ever intended to make one episode of Pinching with Babbage. Yeah, because it was just, it was meant to be for practice. And I wanted to, you know, I was very active on Reddit. Uh-huh. Uh, I still am. Yep. Um, but back then it was posting to the food subreddit, just picture, pretty pictures of dinner that I made. Sure, right. And I was getting pretty good at it. It was like maybe 50% of the time, if I post, I'm going to make it to the top of Reddit food because I know what people want to see. Uh-huh. I know, you know, how they want it titled. And, uh, I can make halfway decent looking food, which is the kind of one, two, three punch to be popular in the food subreddit. Maybe it was back then. It's been three years yeah. now. I don't know if it's still the same deal that or make a burger that like you couldn't physically pick up because it's got so much shit stacked on it. Sure. Um, right. which only looks nice in pictures, folks get right. your burgers mouth sized <laughs> for God's sake. Right. I wanted to make a moving picture, if you will, to, to post to Reddit. <laughs> sure. Uh, and, uh, people, Liked it. They responded to it. Uh, didn't get crazy good viewership. It got better than you might expect because okay. I had a small 
YouTube following built in from um, uh, one video that I made during college that went a little viral. It got a, like uh, 150,000 views. It was a trailer remix or something. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so I just had this little built in audience and that got me, I don't know, 10, 15,000 views. Okay. And all the reception was very positive and, and no real advice to speak of. Nobody was sure. like, you should stop doing this or whatever. And people just said, we want more. So I was like, okay, this could be a fun hobby. This could be a good creative outlet, good practice, just exercise the muscle, you know? Right. And so I, I kept going. Episode two, I decided to go a little batshit yep. and make uh, the timpano from Big Night, which uh-huh. is a huge undertaking, yes. especially when you're making a full-time job and filming it at the same time. Because, right. you know, I filmed the show myself. I edited it myself. And uh, so that 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 was a little wild. And I kind of lost my mind to that episode. If you watch it, I, I kind of get a little loopy around 5 a.m. when I'm still rolling <laughs> yeah. uh, Garganelli. You know, those first three episodes sort of sh- showed me like, I'll do anything for this show, even though nobody's really watching it. And, you know, I don't know if it'll go anywhere. I know I'll do anything for it. So I, I just kept, just kept making it yeah. when I could. How important was it for you then to have that sort of creative outlet and that time in your life? So important. It, it was, it was energizing. And that's why I was so, another reason why I was so personal in the book is that this show is so intrinsically tied to my life and how my life has taken shape and my happiness in general has um really originated as as a as a result direct result of this show so i wanted to share that and early you say early on you're you're filming everything you're editing everything doing all the voiceover are you still doing that all on your own for, for binging, binging? Yeah. for binging yes uh the other shows basics this guy and other guys from our partner company come out and help me shoot it cuz it's a multi-camera show so i need some help sure uh and and they uh, start the edit for me and then i finish it I still you know I do the voiceover and i clean up the edit and send it back to them for finishing and then um being the third show which is a uh, you know just sort of a travel experiential vlog that's a group effort because I'm the focus of it, but I, you know, I don't edit it. I don't, uh, I help a little bit and I do the voiceover and everything, obviously, but that's a, that's a big team effort of everybody on board. Yeah. But you're still intimately involved, obviously in binging and you write in the book that you say, we live in an incredible time of democratized self-expression where almost anyone can say something if they've, they've found a voice and that you have lived the vast majority of your life in fear fear of being rejected, mocked, disliked, but have worked to be unafraid to be your truest self. Do you still grapple with that even today? That sort of fear of being rejected or not being good enough? And how do you deal with that? Sure, sure. Absolutely. I'm afraid. I was terrified when the book came out. I was like, are people going to like it? Every episode that comes out, I'm like, are people going to like this? Yeah. And I, I, I hold myself to as high a standard as I possibly can. The channel overall has an average like to dislike rate, uh, ratio of 98 to two. Okay. And anything that dips below that ratio, I am looking at why, like, what is the problem here? What can I do differently next time? Over like, Just like in the kitchen, a 97, three, you'll beat yourself up a little bit. Big time. Yeah. yeah that means something's wrong because yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the, the viewership and the, and the like to dislike ratio are generally predictable. If I'm doing my job, they follow a pretty predictable pattern. Sure. Uh, so if they deviate from that, that means I'm not doing my job. And most of the time on binging, if not all the time, are you making it for the first time on camera? Always. Just, Always. In, just in case I get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well shoot it. <laughs> right. And then if I get it wrong, I try to include that because sure. I want people to see, you know, I did this wrong and look what happened. So now that I did this and look what happened. That's such right. an interesting decision though, for someone who sort of is struggling with that fear of being disliked or being not good enough to decide that, you know, I could imagine you easily saying, I'm going to make this recipe three times so that when I do it on camera, I know it's going to be awesome and I'm going to get a 98 too. Well, people respond to, especially on YouTube, people respond to 
hosts being genuine and uh, just being themselves. And I, um, I didn't start the show. Like, like we said, it was an exercise. I didn't start the show to try and become famous or to try and, you know, make a career out of it. I'd never imagined it would turn into a career. So I was completely free to be just myself, to just make something that I'm proud of, that I feel is an extension of myself. That's all it was for. Yeah. So people responded to that. So there's no reason for me to be anything other than my actual self on the show. Yeah. What was it like to make it a career? What was it like when you hit that that sort of breaking point or that turning point when you said I can leave my full-time job and pour myself into this? Frightening. Anytime yeah. you anytime you leave the comfort of a paycheck coming from somebody else to, you know, try to build your own, it's right. uh, terrifying. Right. Um but uh very exciting and livening and uh, happily the the growth continued kind of linearly, so just just uh, I felt relatively secure and um I've since been able to hire my best friend as my business partner and, and work with uh, some dear friends of mine, this guy over here, uh, at Nashville and, and meet some incredible people and do some incredible things. So sure. it's just been kind of all, all going good since then. Yeah. And what do you call yourself these days? Do you consider yourself a chef? Do you consider yourself a, a content creator? Like, how do you describe if someone stops you on the street what you do? I say that I'm a YouTube cook or I'm a content creator. I do not say I'm a chef. I'll okay. tell you that much. Okay. Uh, I did not go to culinary school. Uh-huh. I am, I've only worked in a restaurant as a server or as a plater, and that does not qualify me as a chef. Uh, if the, there is a video on YouTube, if you check it out, um, on uh, um, the burger show on First We Feast, where I try to uh-huh. hack it in Alvin Kylon's kitchen. And if you watch that, you will know I am not a chef. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, an enthusiastic home cook that knows how to edit better than he can cook. Sure. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Andrew Ray, author of Binging with Babish, 100 Recipes Recreated from Your Favorite Movies and TV Shows. And we're catching up again with Sierra Tishgart, co-founder of home cookware startup Great Jones, to explore some of our favorite and unique vintage cookbooks from the Great Jones Library. And of course, here's the fun part. If you're a regular listener, you know that whenever Sierra and the Great Jones team join us to talk about a vintage cookbook, hearing about it on Salt and Spine is just half of the fun. If you head over to the Great Jones Instagram page, you'll have the chance to leaf through the book with us too, taking a visual sneak peek inside the pages of this classic volume. Let's bring in Sierra now. Hi, Sierra. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us again to talk about another cookbook from your collection at Great Jones. And I think you pulled down um, today Monet's table. Is that right? Yes, we did. Um, This is a very special book um, written all about how Claude Monet and his family ate and dined. Okay. Um, it's a really interesting look, you know, into someone so iconic and how food impacted his work and beyond. Yeah, it's really interesting to see some... Uh, we've talked about, you know, celebrity cookbooks, and now we're talking about Mo- a Monet book about how he ate, but it's really sort of interesting to see people who are famous maybe outside of food, uh, how they eat and mm-hmm. the traditions they have and what they cook for family members or what they use um, to celebrate special occasions. Yes, at Great Jones, we're always thinking about you know, design and food simultaneously. So, so seeing a connection to art and also just um, interesting tidbits. Soup was served every day in the Monet house. Okay. Fun fact. 
Monet ate very early and always went to bed by 9.30 to feel productive, which unfortunately is not how I live my life, but I keep the value in. <laughs> yeah, me either. Um, I really respect that, though. Maybe there's something we can learn there. I, I read um, that that often meant that he wasn't having people over for dinner. Is that right? Because he was going to bed really early. He was having people over throughout the day instead. Definitely very into tea and cake. Um, this shows up in his paintings as well. Yeah, really interesting. It's so interesting to see the inspiration there. And I think he also is a person who traveled a lot, right? So we're probably seeing some influence from his travels and, and what he decided to cook for himself and what he decided to serve. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, as you said, yes, the entertaining time I'm now seeing, uh, it was lunch at 1130. That was when people gathered. I see. Okay. <laughs> so at least, at least a lot of times of the day, but a lot of what's in his book um, was collected, like you said, from his travels, but, um, but really what ends up in his cooking journals and recipes that came through that and those, and those sketchings and, you know, really did an amazing job at tracking his life and documenting it. I think that that seeing, seeing you know, the actual recipes in the book written out so beautifully is really impactful. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there's sort of, there's, I think, illustrations sort of throughout of sort of reproductions in some of his work. Is that right? Yes. And the photography definitely has this like French countryside feel. It really made me want to take a vacation. Well, I'm so glad you pulled this book down. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sierra. Yeah, thank you. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Andrew Ray, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Plus, you'll get lots of perks like free t-shirts, bookmarks, and cookbooks. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt a-n-d spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the current issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies, on how they're speaking out on behalf of women in minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And now, let's get back to our conversation with Andrew Ray, author of Binging with Babish. In the foreword to your your new cookbook, John Favreau writes that much like with cooking, we go into the field of storytelling, as as he has done to just like you, because we want to connect with others on an emotional level. And he acknowledges that one thing that you do quite well is encouraging fans to turn off their screen and embark on a journey of learning and connecting with real people in real life, going out and actually cooking things. Is that something you anticipated that people would do when you started making these videos? I think so. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I, I designed these videos to be watchable, uh-huh. but not in an attempt to stop you from turning them off and trying it yourself. For instance, I, I, I I've never once said like, and subscribe or smash that sure. play next button or whatever. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> any, it's my pleasure because, uh, any, any time somebody watches my show, I want them to do it of their own volition. Uh, if they like the show, I want them to do that of their own volition. If they want to keep watching, et cetera. But this show aims to get people cooking. I yep. want it to feel accessible to people because it is. If you have a few basic tools 
you have limitless possibilities. If you have a sharp knife and a big cutting board and a, and a cast iron pan, you can make myriad of delicious things. And sure. that's an exciting prospect. Yeah. So you want people out there cooking. When did you decide that you would write cookbooks? Or that your content would actually become cookbooks, right? This is drawing from all of the binging episodes. Yeah. So the first cookbook that I wrote was Eat What You Watched, which Mm -hmm. is more of a coffee table book. It's more of a conversation piece. It's more about the photography and the the novelty of making foods from movies. Sure. And that one, I believe I signed with the publisher when I had 70,000 subscribers. And by the time it went to print... I had over a million. Sure. So there was, you know, they got a good deal. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not even saying that it's just more like, um, there's, there, there was a, um, an unexpected experience for both of us in okay. making that book. And I'm very proud of it. I thought, I still think it's a lovely thing to have on one's table, but, uh, to have on one shelf, I think this is more of a resource, even though it is foods from movies. I've purposefully tried to ex- explore as many dishes and cuisines as I possibly can through the lens of movies. So this is more of a, um, hopefully a resource in, in folks' kitchens. Sure. I'm curious as someone who's now published a couple cookbooks, um, and also created so much cooking content from a video perspective. Both of those, I feel like, are mediums that have been sort of speculated a lot about what the future holds for. So are cookbooks going to die out, right, was a big conversation for a while. They, they continue to be quite strong in terms of the publishing sector. And I think there's also been conversation around video-based cooking shows, right? Like there's sort of a tried and true format that has existed for a while. And recently there's been sort of a push by you and others to, to try different molds and to break that a little bit. Where do you sort of see things going from here in those, in those respective industries? I think there's places for all those things in the future. Okay. Um, I think the old way of doing cooking shows where beautiful people in a beautiful kitchen make beautiful food on their first try for their beautiful spouse and dog. Right. Uh, I think there's always going to be a place for that. Those are lovely to watch. They are good resources and they're, they're, they're feel good. They make you feel good. I mean, I like to think my show makes people feel good too, because yeah. they see this, this moron, you know, screwing things up too. Like he's just like me. He also <laughs> fucks things up. I think that, uh, there's a place for both, for, for all of it. I love the sort of punk rock movement that's happening with, uh, online food content. Just, just, you know, being yourself and showing your mistakes and making it rough and ready. And, sure. you know, just it, there's an empowerment and a connection to that. I think people feel more connected to me as a YouTuber than they might to a television personality because, you know, it's, it's almost like I'm speaking directly to them instead right. of through a TV. I know it's through their computer, but there's, there's a, there's a more intimate connection there. And, and as a result, I've been able to meet with and discover the robust relationship that I have with all these people, especially on this book tour. It's been really enlivening and exciting to see the way that this show has affected people. Yeah. Let's talk about the book for a minute. So worst recipes that you had to work on in the book, Charlie's milk steak from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yep. I had a feeling you were going to say that it's in the book though. There's a recipe, my version, your version. Yes. And I'm Uh, curious how you take something like that. How do you, what's your process? Like how do you approach that and give us a version that you feel comfortable giving us? So for those of you who haven't seen the show, I always start with a very faithful recreation of the original. So in this case, it's a steak boiled in milk topped with jelly beans. How do you improve that? Yes. Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do some research. This is a steak cooked in milk. So at the very least, I need to find a way to cook meat in milk, which just, but then in my research, I discovered there's an old Italian method for braising pork in particular, but I Uh found a couple recipes for beef where they braise it in milk and they let the milk fats separate. It doesn't look terribly good. Um, It looks pretty gnarly. 
even though that's the way it's supposed to be. But that's because you got these brown milk fats separating from the milk. So you have these like chunky brown bits all over the meat. Right. It doesn't look great, but it tastes very, very good. Very interesting. Brown milk fats on pork is a, is a lovely flavor uh-huh. with maybe a couple of herbs thrown in there, a little sage, a little garlic. So I was like, okay, let's, let's translate that to beef. Maybe that'll work for beef. Worked just fine, but I, you know, there's no, there was no saving the sauce. The sauce was no good, just visually at least. Sure. Uh, uh, so I was like, okay, we, we managed to cook it in milk, make it taste nice. How do we, how do we, um, bring more milk into the, into the equation? And the answer there was gravy. And I was just, just for the hell of it, I was like, let's just make it a bacon gravy. Sausage gravy is a little too breakfasty, a little too obvious. What's bacon gravy like? And made that, decided to, you know, serve that over the, over the beef. Lovely flavors there, obviously. And then for, uh, jelly beans, uh, the only real option there was to just tr- try to go chefy with it and, sure. and make a, a gel. I think I did using agar agar. I can't remember. Okay. Uh, but d- d- just, just making a, uh, an opaque gel flavored rosemary and pea shoots that you know, I was just trying to be all chef's table about it as much as I could be. And then uh, there, there's no reference to this in the original recipe, but I, I wanted some texture in there. I wanted some uh, salty kind of, you know, just other textures to play with the beef. And so I, I just deep fried some cubes of polenta, of Parmesan polenta, sure. and and, and uh, sort of dotted those on the plate. It turned out really lovely. Yeah. Um, it's probably not worth all the effort. Any way I can try to make a palatable version of Charlie's monstrosity, yeah. I'm happy to try. Yeah. Have you ever been unable to achieve a palatable version of something. I know you had a similar sort of experience with Buddy's pasta from the movie Elf, which is you just totally had to like break down to the bare minimums and build back up into a different pasta recipe. Oh, no, I I, I didn't make a good version of that at all. No, it was totally, it was just a different pasta. No, I didn't make any different pasta. I literally only made his version if I remember. Oh, I think you have a version in here though. That's, um, that's with San Marzano tomato sauce. Oh no, I, I just, I, it's just a so, pasta. So, that m- just... The, the, I couldn't make a good version of that. So I right. figured, you know, he starts with a tomato spaghetti. Right. So I might as well just show people how to sauce up pasta properly to do it in the pan with some pasta water, with some butter or whatever. Sure. I, I just thought I'd at least show that as a learning opportunity. And then I ruined it with all the sweet stuff. <laughs> I was right. unable to make a good version of that. Of, of that. With all of the sweet yeah, stuff. It was yeah. really just an opportunity to talk about pasta a little bit. But you had to eat it. A number of times. More times than I am comfortable with. What is it like? It's horrible. So, yeah. you know, you got, the, you got the very, um, you know, sort of a pasta has a lovely texture until you mix it with flavors that it doesn't work with. And right. then you're focused on the fact that you're eating chocolate pop tarts with this spongy kind of soft kind of chewy texture attached to it. And, um, yeah, I can't, I can't recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, those are maybe some of the low lights that you, you built on highlights from the recipes that you've cooked through. I mean, one of my favorites to the point where I have a tattoo of it now is pasta aglio olio uh-huh. from, uh, from chef. And the reason I love that one so much is because it's empowered so many new comers to the kitchen to give it a shot. Uh, sure. hundreds, if not thousands of people have tagged me on Instagram saying I tried cooking for the first time because this recipe seemed really easy and they might burn the garlic or they might, overcook the pasta or whatever, but in the end, you're still going to end up with something really good. It's really surprisingly good for only having eight ingredients, nine if you include boiling water. It's an empowering dish for new cooks, and that was really exciting to me, and it was very important to me, so that's why I got a a tattoo of it, and then that eventually led to me meeting the man himself and being on his show. And And then he gave you... The, he the gave fork. me the actual fork from yeah the, from the movie yeah for that yeah. he used to serve pasta to Scarlett Johansson and I just recently I saw him wow that was yesterday Jesus <laughs> days of blurring together yeah I just saw him yesterday to give him his thank you for writing the forward uh, which was a custom made carving fork that I got made by Houston Edgeworks 
that was modeled to sort of look like the original, but it was made with all these beautiful woods and the special sure. metal and all this. He really enjoyed that. And, uh, he wrote them just the most beautiful kind forward to yeah. my books as least I could do. Obviously you're a self-taught cook. Um, you didn't go to culinary school. Are there books or authors that have been particularly important to you as you've learned to cook? I pulled down one yeah. from a friend of ours who I know has been important to you. Uh, Jake Angie Lopez Alt mm-hmm. is, uh, one of the most, uh, influential people in my culinary life. I've learned more from him and Alton Brown and America's Test Kitchen than really anybody else. So America's Test Kitchen, huge. Yeah. Jake Angie Lopez Alt, huge. And um, America's Test Kitchen, the cookbooks or the show, like where all of it? Yes. All of it. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> uh, Cooks Illustrated, just all those uh-huh. classics. Those are su- such both time tested and literally tested recipes where they'll go through hundreds of iterations of this recipe with hundreds of taste testers and find the absolute best way, not only to make it, but to, uh, to, to make it as good as humanly possible, sure. like the easiest way and the best way. It's, 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 it's science put to work for good for once. And, uh, and, and, and Kenji is just, uh, such a mad genius in the kitchen. He's, he's come up with so many gorgeous recipes over the years and, and his, his book is a work of art. It's really embarrassing to be discussing his book and mine in the same breath. So <laughs> I don't, I don't think so at all. I think he, he would be happy that we're talking about him. Um, you've also said that you learned to cook in some part from YouTube as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a YouTube taught chef because yeah. you can just go there and you can be like, how do I make smash burgers? And you got 10 different people. You could find a person that you like. Right. Uh, telling you how to make smash burgers and, right. and, um, anyone we should be watching. I mean, you know, Alvin's the kind of the king of the, I don't know Alvin. Uh, sorry. Alvin Kylon, okay. uh, uh, is kind of the king of the YouTube burger universe of burger. Universe. Uh, okay. He's got a show called burger show on oh, first okay, yeah. same network yeah. as uh, hot ones. Mm-hmm. And, um, he owns egg slut out in LA and right. he owns, uh, the usual in New York city. And I think okay. he's opening another place as well. He's kind of the king of burgers. Um, George Motes, uh, okay. is the burger scholar. Uh, I don't know if you have his cookbook anywhere, but he's, he's eaten over 16,000 burgers in his pursuit of become, becoming literally like the preeminent mind in burgers in, wow. yeah. in the world. Yeah. Uh, and he has a great burger a book. I think it's called hamburger America. If I remember correctly, he looks like the preeminent burger scholar. He's <laughs> like, you know, kind of big manly dude with gray hair and long, like mutton chops. So uh, like, yeah, uh, not mutton chops, just really, really long sideburns. He, he, he looks like he knows what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah. So obviously as a person who spends most of your time creating online content, what role, but, but you're here to talk about your cookbook. What role do you think cookbooks, you know, in the physical printed form play in our society today, especially with the deluge of content that we're getting from YouTube and elsewhere? Well, I mean, you need recipes. You can watch YouTube videos all day. You can't really cook along with them generally. You could pause and rewind, pause and rewind. But generally, I, I want ingredients and I want steps in front of me always. And yeah. you can do that on your laptop, obviously. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, I think we're all a little hipster in some way. It's nice to have something in your hand. And, 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 and there's something about cookbooks where if they're from somebody that you trust and somebody you like, there's this pedigree to them where you're like, hey, you know, if I make something out of this, it's probably going to be good. If they say it's good, it's probably going to be good. That's, that's why I, I own the, the America's Test Kitchen books. Cause if I know if I make anything out of that book, it's going to rock. Sure. Same thing with Kenji's as well. There, you know, especially in the case of Kenji, especially in the case of, um, well, really all cookbooks, actually, they're, they're kind of a, a, a one-stop fountain of knowledge that you're not really going to get online. You could research it, you could figure it out, but if you want to figure out how to make the best burgers in the world, you get George Motz's book, you read it cover to cover, and you're going to know everything about burgers. Uh, you could figure out everything about burgers from the internet, but it's going to be a much more intensive um, kind of uh, meandering process, and it's yeah. going to 
make you draw a lot of your own conclusions. And, you know, with books, it's, it's a very, it's a very concentrated piece of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So we always end with a little game. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I read that one of your first jobs was at a movie theater. Is that right? Uh, one of them. Yeah. I was, I was, um, I was a concession stand in a regal in movie a regal, theater. Okay. Yeah. So originally I really wanted to come up with a game that played on that in some way, but I worried that if we did concessions too much that we might give you like, trauma from buddy's pasta memory or something as so as as i adapted it a bit as long as you don't play the seven minutes of like music and advertisements that would be on <laughs> loop all day at that movie theater uh, i'll be fine okay um so let's instead say that you're hosting a weekly dinner in a movie party so friends are coming over you're going to screen a movie and you're also going to prepare dinner for all of your guests so i'm going to give you sort of a classic foodie movie um and you're going to tell us what you would cook up for dinner that night. The uh, constraints are that you have to work with certain ingredients that you have on hand, which is where our little cards come into play. Okay. Um, gotcha. So assume that you have sort of a basic pantry, of course, that you can rely on, but then think of this as sort of like an episode of Chopped, right? You've got a little basket of ingredients that you need to and pull from. And it has from. to be movie themed. This is a... And it has to be movie themed. Wow. So I'm going to give you the movie and then you can draw, um, draw the cards to see what you have in your basket. So let's start maybe with, um, with Ratatouille, the Pixar animated movie. Let's see what you have so to my, work with. My secret ingredient is fish sauce. Okay. okay. Then, then I can, I can deal with that. Duck. Oh, there's no duck in that movie, no. but come on. It's in France. Cauliflower and cinnamon. Shit. That okay. is deeply ready for Asian flavors. Not, uh, yeah, not, uh, not French. Oh man, that's tricky. Yeah. Cause I, you know, we, we could, we could do a, a Chinese five spice duck real nice with this. Sure. Oh um, yeah. Actually. With, with some kind of like, uh, you know, or just a, even a stir fry or, um, or fried rice with, uh, with duck breast or something. Maybe it's the sequel. It's Ratatouille 2. And he, yeah. He, he's in China. It's Ratatouille 2. <laughs> Remy goes to China. <laughs> um, okay. Let's see. Well, fish sauce is really just like straight up umami. So right. that's going to fit. The cinnamon, I'm not entirely sure what to do with. I guess I would confit the duck. Okay. I, I mean, it's not ratatouille oriented, but if I were sure. to make this, uh, I would, ju- I would, I would just, uh, confit the duck with, with fish sauce and cinnamon and, uh, and serve it with a cauliflower puree or something like that. Okay. That sounds lovely to me, but, uh, that's not very ratatouille oriented. Um, yeah. I think it'd be delicious either way. Yeah. And a good accompaniment to the movie. I mean, it's a movie about loving food. So, you know, right. Exactly. I, I don't know. That's the best I got for you yeah. with these. This is, I know this, this, <laughs> this can be challenging. Let's, let's Wait, give it another shot. Flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to, I think one of our favorite movies, chef, John chef. Favreau, right, chef. That's, that's a little, so we're thinking here that, um, you know, working, working out of a food truck. Yeah. What so do we have? What I've got here are kumquats okay. steak. Sweet potatoes and chives. This game is hard when you add, <laughs> add a movie to it. Yes. Um, all right. So, uh, sh- so during the, um, scene when he walks out of the restaurant and the restaurant is serving his old menu, he prepares this beautiful, beautiful meal, uh, all for himself just to show right. like, I still got it. You know, right. it's like, he just wants to prove to himself that he's still inspired. I, I do remember distinctly that one of the dishes, I think it was, it was steak with, there was definitely a puree of some kind being swirled on the, on the, on the plate. Okay. So I'm thinking, um, we do a sweet potato puree that you make some nice, uh, smears of on the plate, some chefy smears on the plate. Sure. And then, uh, for steak, let, let, let me go short rib on that. Okay. If I may. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you sous vide the short rib, get a nice sear on it, 
and then cut it into sort of cubes and then sort of place it around there. And then, um, I don't know. I've never even had a kumquat, honestly. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what to do with that. I would garnish with chives, sure. That's going to be lovely on its own. Yeah. Kumquats, you take home as a gift. Right. That's um, your, your after dinner snack kumquats. for the movie. I've never had one, so I honestly don't know. I yeah. wish I could taste one and I could be like, what do I do with this? Uh, it says that it, the skin is sweet, the fruit is sour, can be eaten whole, but spit out the seeds. So I guess seed it, have it, and maybe, um, maybe sear it like you would a lemon and maybe oh. squeeze the juice over top. That might give some nice acidic contrast to the sweetness from the sweet potatoes and the richness of the steak. Sure. That could be nice. Yeah, that could be nice. Assuming that that would be good. I don't, right. I, I don't know because <laughs> I've never had kumquat, but I'm, that's my, that's my best shot. I'm envisioning it could be too. All right, let's do one more to close it out. So let's say you're hosting a, a documentary screening of super size me, um, the fast food, Fast food commentary, Hopefully right? This is a whole so, bunch of really healthy shit. So let's see what you got. White truffle butter, <laughs> lamb, spinach, nutmeg. Jesus Christ. Right. Um, well, what, uh, God almighty. I don't know where nutmeg fits in there. I yeah. was going to say you could make a really, you know, to, to sort of thumb your nose at McDonald's, right. you could make a really gourmet burger and you could have a white truffle, uh, uh, toasted bun sure. with a lamb burger and uh-huh. spinach on top. I don't know where the nutmeg fits. Yeah. Uh, with some nutmeg in it. With some nutmeg, yeah. Maybe there's <laughs> yeah. A, a nice spice mixture in the I mean, lamb. I guess, uh, yeah. The lamb patty yeah. that incorporates okay. a little nutmeg. Yeah, that's a good idea. We could spice the patty with nutmeg and some allspice and some cinnamon. And uh-huh. some, uh, yeah, it could, it, it could be spiced. And then maybe some mint thrown on there. You got spinach, white truffle butter. That'd be good. Yeah, I think that'd be I good. That'd be good. And, and, and on theme and probably with a side of fries. I would hope so. I would hope so, too. All right. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me, man. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can leave us a rating or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Additional music in today's show is Money by Yas, live at WFMU. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Priya Krishna, to Sierra Tishgart at Great Jones, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>